We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Let me read this passage for you, and then we'll, we'll walk through it. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for We walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The Word of God. What on earth is Paul saying? Uh, uh, This is one of the uh, most hotly debated passages in the Bible. There's a lot of conjecture over Paul's verbiage here and the way he uses his words and so on and so forth. And, and, uh, And I think that a lot of the the doubt about what he's saying, a lot of the confusion over what he's saying is is taken because people kind of treat this passage, even biblical scholars treat this passage as if it stands on its own as if it's isolated. But I think if we take a look at it this morning in the context of what Paul has been doing, what's happened in 1 Corinthians, what's happened in 2 Corinthians, how we've kind of gotten to this point, I think things become a lot clearer and a lot less murky. So that's what we're going to do today. So let me just start out with, with this axiom for you, this truth that we can lay hold of. Our goal in life should be to please God. If we are believers in Christ, if we have been given salvation uh, by the grace of God, then our goal should be to please God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Hang with me on this. We'll get it. The problem we have in pleasing God, as we found out in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you remember the last time we were together in 2 Corinthians, the problem we have is that we're weak. We're weak. We can't make this happen. We stumble all over it. So we have this weakness. Now, in chapter 5, Paul kind of tells us that we're weak in chapter 4. In chapter 5, he tells us what to do about it. What are we going to do about this weakness? So our sermon for today is called Dwelling, and I think that's appropriate because uh, Paul's driving these contrasts between our earthly dwelling and our heavenly dwelling. We'll talk about that in just a second. This is part 8 of our series, I Am Content. And our passage is divided up into three stages. Paul's going to talk about our weakness and our dwelling in three stages. The first stage is our reassurance that we have in uh, verses 1 through 8. In verse 9, we see Paul's resolve, and we'll find out what we can do about having the same resolve. And in verse 10, we see a reckoning. Now, this is a kind of a cloud that is going to loom over the horizon until we get there, but there's a reckoning coming. So, So the context of chapter 5 is that Paul is experiencing this tension with the Corinthian church. 
He was there early, wrote 1 Corinthians to address some difficulties they were having. They're in this, this huge trade center. There are temples and monuments and statues to all sorts of gods. The, literally, the input of the world is coming into Corinth, and it has gotten into the church. Since Paul was there on his first visit, teachers have risen up that have challenged Paul in his, uh, what we call his apolicity, the, the, uh, whether or not he was qualified to be an apostle. And, you know, their accusations with him kind of sound pretty good on the surface. Paul doesn't look like an apostle. He's not tall. He's not good looking. Paul doesn't sound like an apostle all the time. He doesn't have this, this high-handed speech. But the main accusation against Paul is he doesn't seem to be living much like a, a man of God. He keeps on running into all these problems. Everywhere he goes, Paul is in trouble. Paul has been kicked out of almost every town that he's preached in. There's always a small remnant that left behind that, that, that have received the gospel that are, are the, the nation beginnings of a church. But if you were to evaluate Paul's ministry by any earthly measure, he was an abject failure. If we were to look at Paul's ministry and evaluate him by the numbers, the numbers were, they were rotten. You know, the only ones that really listened to him closely were the Bereans. And he got chased out of Berea by the guys from Thessalonica. So these people have come into the Corinthian church and they've leveled these accusations against Paul. And the Corinthian church is listening. They know Paul. Uh, but Paul is relying on something really incredible here. Paul knows that Christ is in him. Paul has seen the evidence of Christ in the Corinthian church. So there's some tension there, but he's relying on the Holy Spirit, on the evidence of Christ in them to rise up and witness the truth to them. Paul trusts Christ in them, and as such, he trusts the Corinthian church. I mean, the letter so far has been kind of, well, you guys know better than this, you know, and, and I know this sounds good to you, uh, but think about this. You know who I am. We know who our Savior is. Uh, we know what we have in common, so we need to set this aside. So he's been doing all this through a, a, uh, a growing series of contrasts, uh, and we've seen that, you know, Paul kind of set this up with the first three chapters. He, he uh, reaffirmed his credentials. He reminded them of who he was, and uh, he didn't really attack the other guys. He's just saying, here's what you know. Here's what you know about me. Here's you, what you know about our Lord. And, and so the first three to four chapters have been all about Paul saying, here's who I am. You know, literally, I'm your spiritual father. The church is there because we worked together to build it. Uh, and then as he rolled into chapter four, he started drawing these contrasts. And the contrasts are largely between what is seen and what is unseen. And trying to encourage them to have faith in what they know about God, not necessarily what they see working around them. So this is kind of coming to a point here in chapter 5, where we see in, in the, the first uh, eight verses here, we have this reassurance that Paul is going to establish, and he starts with it right in verse 1, where he draws another contrast between the earthly tent and our heavenly home, the and now what Paul's talking about is our earthly body as believers, the, the body that we inhabit, compared to the heavenly home that 
that is coming. Now, again, he's talking about the difference between those things that are seen and those things that are unseen. And Paul has been preparing them for this. He's been gently setting them up. Now he's kind of bringing the whole lesson home. When he talks about the tent, he's talking about some of the things he mentioned in chapter 4, like the body in verse 10, uh, like the mortal flesh in verse 11, like the uh, outer person in verse 16, like the earthen pot in verse 17. And here's what Paul set up when he get, finally gets to the body. He's already set all these examples up and, and said that they are wearing away, that they're being torn down, that they're going to be destroyed. Now, we need to stop and think about this for a second because Paul's talking about the body and how the body will be destroyed. This physical body will be destroyed. Some of you, God bless you kids, you young women, okay, aren't thinking a lot about this right now, but I can tell you that the older I get, the more I think about it. When I was 30, I was pretty much indestructible. Anybody with me? Okay, when I was 40, I had a few aches and pains. And I thought, well, maybe I'm not as indestructible as I thought I was. Okay? When I was 50, I was like, hmm, things are starting to change. You know, there, there are emotional changes, there are spiritual changes, there are physical changes. At 60, I started going, you know what, I don't think I'm going to be here forever. And, you know, it's about then when, it, and I, I know most of you have not had this experience, but I have. You look in the mirror and you go, who is that person? Where did all that gray hair come from? Is that another wrinkle? So our bodies are wearing away. And Paul wants us to see that. Now, once that realization comes, there's a little bit of apprehension there. You know, and I, I know that, you know, that one, of the, one of the solid teachings that, that, that we profess here, and we do it over and over again, is the sovereign nature of God. Amen. God is sovereign over all things. Uh, we know that. I got to be honest with you. I know God's sovereign over what's going to happen. I'm just not so sure what he's going to do with that sovereignty. And sometimes I get a little apprehensive about it. I don't know what growing older is going to be like. There's a little bit of fear in me. You know, uh, we've gone through, uh, some of you know about Kelly and her mom. Uh, and, you know, we've gone through diagnosis of dementia for Rosemary, my mother-in-law, is a godly woman. Uh, now that has changed from dementia to they think she has a, an infection that needs to be battled, and uh, so she's actually making progress. We're hoping Kelly will be home by Christmas, <laughs> uh, but uh, that makes, you know, when you see things like that going on around you, it makes you think, well, what's going to happen to me? So I have a, a couple of prayers that I pray daily, I pray that God would preserve my eyesight. I don't see as well as I used to. I have, I have this iPad. <laughs> my original iPad was a lot smaller, but I couldn't see it. I, so I had to go out and buy a larger iPad so I could see, and so I could see the deterioration in my eyes. I asked God daily, preserve my eyesight. One of the fears I have in life is that I won't be able to read. And i got to tell you something, I spend a large part of my, my week reading. And given current circumstances, I've begun praying, Lord, 
Give me clarity of thought. I've told the elders, when I stop making sense, you need to get a hook and get me out of the pulpit because I'm not going to know. But I've asked the Lord to give me clarity of thought. So there's some apprehension there about what God might do. And so I, I want to do what he wants me to do. I want to be in his will. But I'm a human being. And when we face these things, Paul's just acknowledging that, that things are going to change as we age. That the body doesn't last forever. Now, all of those fears, listen, all of those fears should be somewhat nullified by the fact that we have another home. We're not going to get another home. We have another home, and that one is built by God. It's not one that is being built by God. It's not one that's under construction. I told you last week, Jesus isn't up in heaven with some nails in his mouth and a hammer going, I'll be done in a little bit, then I'll come and get you. That home is built. So we are assured of the other home that we have. We live in a little bit of a dichotomy. We, we live in the physical world, which is deteriorating, but we are destined and in heaven, which is already there. We are in Christ, who is where? Seated at the right hand of the Father. So we have a deteriorating earthly home, but we have this eternal home that is ours as well. So Paul wants us to see the hope in that, that we don't depend on what we see, but we embrace what is unseen. So, and, and Paul, Paul yearns for that home. Paul longs for that home. The, the, the word here is he groans for that heavenly home. Now, listen carefully. I've heard a lot of teaching on what this groan mean, means. But if we take a look at the way Paul uses groans and we take a look at it in context, we're going to see that there's really nothing miraculous. There's nothing supernatural about this groaning. Uh, it's more like a longing. It's more like, it's more like a sigh. I had to go to Wegmans yesterday. I, I got up and it had been a busy week and I, I called everybody that I had the potential to meet with and said, I've got to stay home, got to do sermon prep. Uh, and so I'd been home for about two hours or so, and I went to the kitchen and went, ah, I've got to go shopping. I'll go Monday. I can't. I have to eat between now and Monday. <laughs> so I thought, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hop into my car. I'm going to go down to Wegmans. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk in there and pick up this stuff, and I'm going to check out, and I'm going to come home. I think I can be home in 20 minutes. Supermarkets aren't made that way. You see people walking into the supermarket. You know, 10 minutes later, you see them walking around going. Well, that was me. So I had to fight traffic to get there. I didn't even get there in 20 minutes. When I get there, the place is just jammed out. If you don't have stock in Wegmans, you ought to get it. I mean, all the buggies are gone. I got to wait for a buggy. They got like 900 of them. People are all over the store. I'm fighting the crowds trying, just trying to get to, to the tissue paper. And when I finally get in line, they've got 30 or 40 cashiers there. They're all spilling out into the aisle. And, and I'm sitting there going, ah, ah i got to get home. And, and, and I can feel my frustration level rise. Well, you know, I, you know, I shared with you last week, God's been working me in, in these areas here. Frustration, my frustration is really nothing more than a denial of God's sovereignty over the moment. 
God, things aren't going my way. This kind of bothers me. You know, my anger is the same type of expression. I don't like the way things are going. I'm getting mad. I was getting frustrated and angry, standing in line. And, you know, the Holy Spirit in me, not because I'm so spiritual, but because I needed somebody to whack me up the head with a, a two-by-four, the Holy Spirit in me said, oh, really? This bother you? Aren't you about to teach on God's sovereignty? And I went, you know what I did? I went, because God is sovereign. Because I know that he's in control of the situation. Because I know that whatever is going on right right there, God is working in the situation. And it might not seem good to me at that particular moment, but he intends to do good for me in it. See, that's what Paul's doing here. He's sighing. Somebody once said, a sigh is the language of the heart. It's a language of the heart that accepts its circumstances and decides to take joy in them. Paul is sighing for his heavenly home. He's not upset over it. He's not not spouting something that nobody can understand. He longs for his heavenly home. He longs to be with God. His true home. He wrote about it in Romans uh, 8.23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's eagerly waiting for his heavenly home. And then he says in verse 3, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Now, this has caused a lot of problems for somebody, for a lot of people, trying to figure out what this means. All, all he's really saying is, is that we're not going to be without a body. He's trying to say that in the resurrection, it will be a physical resurrection. There was a lot of teaching. It was in the Corinthian church at the time that when you die, the physical body just decays, but you become like one with the universe. You become a disembodied spirit floating around. Paul's teaching against that. He said, that's not going to be true. He said, we're going to have a body. So uh, the, the, the verbiage he uses here is not real clear at it, but if you take it in context and see what's going on next, it becomes clear. So it's not this disembodied, floating, spiritual resurrection. It is a physical resurrection. If we read the scriptures carefully, we're not going to go into it right now. But if you take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, some of the other passages on resurrection, you'll see that we're going to have bodies. They're probably going to be very similar to the ones we have. That's why we should take care of the ones we have. Amen? Okay? But they're going to be glorified bodies. Uh, when Jesus shows up after the resurrection, they don't always recognize him. They've got to be with him for a while. And they go, oh, wait a minute. That's, that's the Lord. Okay? Well, it wasn't that he had changed appearance. It was just he was glorified. He was pure. Uh, he was ascending to the Father. And there was something different about him. It didn't make him immediately recognizable. But there was a physical body. He sat down and had fish. Twice. You know, he said, Thomas, touch the wounds. So he sat down in a chair. So our resurrection is going to be physical. Paul wants us to remember that. He wants us to know that the resurrection is physical. So in verse 4, he says, For while we were still in this tent... In this physical body, we groan, we long for, we are burdened, not that we should be unclothed, not that we should be without a body at all, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Paul is saying, 
what we're going to get is more of this. But not of a decaying body, but it will be swallowed up by life. And he's talking about eternal life here. The body that's waiting for us will be eternal. It will be physical, it will have physical characteristics, but it will be eternal and not suffer the decay of the world. Not that we're burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but we further clothes. Now, the great thing about all this shows up in verse 5, where Paul tells us that he's prepared us for this, and kind of the way that Paul has prepared the Corinthians for what he has to say, but God has prepared us for this and given us his spirit to seal it. Now, I want you to see what happens here. He says, we have the empirical evidence, the word of God that says he's prepared us for this. We have an objective reality that we can embrace. It is the word of God. It is the promise. And it's not subject to how we feel about it. It's not subject to how we interpret it. God says we're going to have this new dwelling. Great. We can make a theological, academic exercise over that. We can look at the language, we can dissect the way the passage runs, and we can go, yep, that's what God says. How do we believe it? How do we lay hold of it? God has given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the objective reality of where we're going, and He's giving us the Holy Spirit, the subjective experience of being in the presence of God through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to realize the reality of what He's teaching us. We have God built it, and He's giving you the Holy Spirit to embrace it. I just love that because God, God is constantly covering all the bases, isn't he? And, and for us, we need to understand that uh, because sometimes when you get into some deep theological teaching, uh, we can appropriate it mentally, but it doesn't have an impact on our hearts. See, and that's what we're talking about here. Mentally, we receive the new home, but our hearts have to receive it. We have to put our trust and our faith in God. We have the Holy Spirit there to move us, to draw us to Him, to reveal the meaning of Scripture to us, to function in our lives as somebody drawing us into this area where we point towards Jesus Christ and the gospel and all that we do. That's how the Spirit works in us, by our experiences, by how we experience the, the things that He shows us. So, in verse 6, Paul says this should encourage us. Look what he says. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. He said, while I'm here, I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm away from the Lord. I'm, I'm not in his actual presence. Our current home is this body, but we're not physically with the Lord right now. We have a union, uh, but it has yet to be fully realized. So in verse 7, he says that we can't walk by what we see. We can't walk by what we see right now. We have to walk by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Now, that's something we're all familiar with. How do we appropriate that? Well, we appropriate that by responding to the Spirit. And again, in verse 8, Paul mentions courage again. And, and he says that we'd rather be with the Lord, with the Lord than in this body. But, but you know what? He's happy either way. 
said, you know, I'd rather be with the Lord than in this body, but as long as I'm in this body, I'm going to be thankful for it, and I'm going to look forward. I'm not going to be disappointed in what God is doing. I'm, I'm not going to reject what he's doing. I'm going to walk in this body for all that it's worth. I'd rather be with the Lord, but fine. I'm, I'm good here. Yes, we are of good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So what God has given us this reassurance. He's got this home for us. And he's given us the spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee on that home. Now, how does that work? How do we lay hold of that guarantee? When the spirit begins moving in us, how, how, do, we, how do we appropriate that for our lives? Yeah, well, we have to understand how the spirit functions. And the spirit functions to draw us unto Jesus Christ. How, did he do, how does he do that? Well, look, if you... If you have deep inside you, now we're, we're all going to be in different places on this. We're all going to be, and, and we'll be in different places on different days. But if there is a spark inside of you that wants to know more about God, that's the Holy Spirit. If there's something inside you, maybe you're not reading your Bible every day. But if there's a little voice in the back here says, you know, I really ought to do that. That's the Holy Spirit drawing you to the Father. If, if you're hearing a sermon and something stirs in your heart and, and you go, he's talking about me. That's not me, it's the Holy Spirit. So how do we appropriate it? We respond to the Holy Spirit. We respond to that movement in our lives. We respond to that little voice in our conscience that causes us to grieve over sin, that causes us to repent. We respond to that little voice that goes, you shouldn't do that. i got to be honest with you, I'm not always good at that. But it's there. And if you're saved, you might not realize this. Unregenerated people don't have that. They'll justify their sin. Maybe they're sorry that they did something. But that, that call to repentance is not there. You see, and that presence of the Holy Spirit is the reassurance that Paul is talking about that we will go to our home that is already built for us. So, pleasing him Pleasing him should be the goal of our lives. Well, why in verse 9? Because, because our going to him is guaranteed. Look, so whether we are at home or away, make it our aim to please him. Because our going to him is guaranteed. Because it's guaranteed, we should be living in a manner that pleases him. Now, our pleasing him, and listen carefully. It cannot be a couple of things. Number one, it can't be rote. It can't be mechanical. It can't be, oh, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. So that should please my father. I mean, when we get down to the, if I do this, the father will be pleased. If I do this, the father will be pleased. Hey, Lord, look at me. Look what I've done over here. Sometimes, sometimes we're like little kids, aren't we? Look at me, Daddy. And we're, I mean, we have to stop and think about what's happening when we do that. Because I would say that most of the times we're really not trying to please the Father. We're trying to get something. So we're really doing it for ourselves. 
We're doing it so that God would recognize us, so God would bless us, so that God would find favor upon us. We're doing it to, to curry something from God. Maybe you can do that without, without doing that, but just in my experience, generally we're looking for something. And, and that means that, that we shouldn't do any of this out of rote behavior. We shouldn't do any of this uh, out of some obligation out of some sense of duty, well, God saved me, now I've got to do this, and I've got to, do, I've got to go to church every day, and I've got to be in the choir, and so on and so forth. We shouldn't do it with an expectation of return. You ever been disappointed that you did something good and that God didn't recognize it? Have you ever had somebody go, why even bother with this if God's not going to bless me? We shouldn't do it with any expectation of return. God doesn't owe us anything. He's already given us eternal life. He already created us in the womb. What more do we want? He's already built a new home for us. Our resolve, as we we resolve as Paul did, to be thankful to him in all things, to honor him in how we live, to to, uh, live in a manner that shows our love for him, our resolve should rise up from our thankfulness to God for what he's already done. It should come pouring out of us. Anybody in here ever been in love? Good, three of you. That's very good. Four or five, thank you, in the back. You know, when you're in that giddy, I'm in love feeling and the butterflies are in your stomach, you will do anything for the person that you love. Why? Because, because you love them. That's the type of love that, God, that Paul's talking about here. We should long to please God. Our goal should be to please Him. Why? Because we love Him. Now, check this out. We don't even have to work that up. We don't have, we don't have to conjure that up. What's the Scripture say about how we love Him? We love Him because He... Do you see what Paul's doing? He's saying, these are the things you've got to do, but don't worry, it's all in God. Our capability to love Him, our capability to please Him is, is, is worthless unless He first loves us. And that gives us the ability to love Him. So we don't have to prove it. We don't have to make it happen. All we have to do is be loved and loved the way He did, the way He loves us. Now that should make us thankful. That should mean that the things we do rise up out of our thankfulness. But we may have more to be thankful for than we think. And maybe this is a good time to talk about this. And I'll tell you why. Because there's a reckoning coming. There's a reckoning coming. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Who's Paul talking about? People will tell you, oh, it's not about us. There's no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. That reckoning is not for us. Paul says we. It has a double meaning here. First off, it's collective. He's talking to the Corinthian church. He's not talking to the lost talking to the Corinthian church. But the other thing, and we've seen this all throughout Paul's writing, it's a royal we. Paul's talking about himself. Paul. 
be supernaturally regenerated, supernaturally transformed. Paul. Paul is going to have a reckoning. Paul will give an accounting for what he's done. But it's collective to the body of Christ. Now, this, 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 is where, this is where I start getting butterflies. We will all stand before the Lord and be judged. Don't turn me off. We'll be judged on what we do. We'll be judged on how we live. We will be judged on what we say. Now, Scripture's very clear about this. Follow me. Write this down. Take a look at it later. Psalm 62, 12. And that you, O Lord, belong steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Okay, Old Testament, New Testament. Matthew 12, 36, 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Ouch. Acts 10, 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. That means everybody. Everybody. Romans 14, 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. This is to the church in Rome. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. If this is true, we have no hope. Wow. If it is, we have no hope. But there's hope. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25 and watch what happens here. We're looking at verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. Now, again, He's talking about everyone. Everyone who ever lived will be before Him. And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right but the goat's on the left. Now, the right hand is the hand of favor. The, the, the left is, are, are the goats. And what he's talking about is the sheep are the ones who belong to the shepherd. The goats are going to be ejected. Watch what happens. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. Again, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God has already built it. Okay, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now then, the righteous will answer, because they've got questions on their mind, 
saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you uh, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So is that how we get to heaven? We feed the poor? Stick with me. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. They will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will be go, go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Wow. So is this about feeding the poor? Well, yeah. But feeding the poor is not going to get us into heaven. What is this about then? Taking it in context again. Christ is saying, you, the sheep, the sheep come on my right because you exhibit my character and nature. I've given you two commandments. Number one, love the Lord your God with all of your might. Number two, love those around you as you love yourself. That's what you've done. You see, that's what he's talking about in all those things. It's not those works that save the sheep. It's the character and nature behind the works. You have become like me. And you goats on the left do not have my character and nature. You will go into the eternal flames. You will come into my presence. Wow. See, we've been told there'd be no reckoning for us. I want you to think about this. Because this is what I think this day is going to look like. Quite a few years ago, I got a speeding ticket in the mail from a state that I have never been to. I mean, oh, what is this? You know, so I called the courthouse, and I said, I, I've never been to your state. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Kavakis, but we have a trooper that has your license plate number and the make and model of your car. I went, ah, I've not been there. <laughs> I was at work. Well, you're going to have to come to court. And we're sorry, but we have your license plate and your make and model in your car. I'm like, okay. Well, that didn't upset me too much because I knew I hadn't been there. But I thought I better get a lawyer. I better do something. And so I called the lawyer. He agreed to ride with me. It cost me a ton of money. On the ride up, he said, look, I've been in touch with the judge. And it's all Okay. You're going to plead not guilty, and he's going to let you go. I said, great. Okay. So we go into court, and I'm watching him gavel down these people and charging these outrageous prices and so on and so forth. And when he calls me, I stand up, and i got to tell you something. My knees started shaking. I, 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 I'm like, and, and he said, well, you've been accused of this and this and this, and what do you plead? I'm not guilty. No, I wasn't guilty. 
Okay? But I was nervous. Sweat is on my, my, the, my upper lip. I'm shaking. You know, and, and uh, the, the judge says, I see a representation. The lawyer says, judge, there's some mistake here. I, you know, I don't know what it is, but here's where he was. We have his timestamp where he was at work that day. He wasn't even in the state. And I'm standing there going, what's going to happen to me? I'm absolutely sure they're going to throw me into prison over a speeding ticket and give me gruel and water for the rest of my life, okay? The judge looked at me with one of those judge-like looks. He looked at the lawyer, and all I could see was disdain. I'm probably just reading it through my circumstances. He looked over at the officer who's standing in the back like this, hand on a gun. Pretty sure he's going to shoot me. And he looked back at me and he said, son, you can go home. Now, I knew that I had been acquitted. But that moment was a moment of realization that somebody with more authority than me had control of my life. You see, I think that's what the reckoning is going to be like. I believe that that Christ is going to gather everybody in front of him. Everybody will give an account. Did you realize he said this? Did you realize he did? Not, not, not for those of us who believe in him, not to beat us up, not to make us feel bad, not to chastise us, but to give us a deeper realization of the grace that we've received. See, that's what I got in that courtroom. I realized that I had been given grace. I realized that I could have been condemned. And I think as we stand there in front of that judgment seat, there's going to be fire on one side and the pleasures of heaven on the other. And we sing this in the song, don't we? And I believe when, when we give an account for everything we do and we look up and realize that we have not earned heaven, that we haven't done anything that makes us worthy of entering into his presence, that the judge will look on him and pardon me. So I believe for those of us that are saved, we will have a far more profound understanding of grace than we ever will when we're here in these earthly bodies. And we will walk into him singing his praises and giving him glory. The irony is that those who go to hell will acknowledge him as Lord and Savior as well. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. So we have this incredible reassurance, a home that's already built for us. That reassurance should lead us to the resolve to please God in all that we do. And if that's not enough, if the reassurance is enough, the understanding that a reckoning is coming and that because our home is already built in heaven, our destiny is assured. And God has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of that. The Holy Spirit who guides us and directs us and draws us closer to God. Now, we should, our, our goal in life should be to please God. Amen? We can't. <laughs> We can't do it. Scripture tells us we can't please God. Well, what's Paul telling us to do? He's telling us to rest in Christ. Christ has already pleased God for us. But if we want a deeper walk, 
if we want to enjoy the fuller blessings of the Father, then we'll respond to that drawing. I want to walk in peace, brothers and sisters. I want to walk in the joy of the Lord. I want to walk with my eyes set on Him, not my eyes set on those around me. So I strive to please Him. And all the while I'm striving, I thank Him because He's already pleased Him for me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the work you've done in our lives. We thank you for the reassurance we have of our home in heaven. We thank you, Father, for the resolve that comes up just because your spirit is in us. We thank you for the reckoning that will give us a deeper realization of of the grace that we've received. And we pray, Father, that you would use that to continue to mold us, to shape us, to conform us to your image, Father, to make us better messengers of the gospel, to be those living, breathing, walking, talking testimonies to your transformational power, Father. May people look upon us and say, what has happened to you? And may our answer be Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.